0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tacovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: Keep your face always toward the sunshine and shadows will fall behind you. Walt Whitman.
2: So I'm stepping off of a step and I'm wearing my calderas and they got that really soft Um, patch on the heel like super super soft Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and I step on a piece of granite that's pointed up and it hits right on um, I guess a cyst that had grown around a nerve from the plantar fasciitis and it broke it It it. and I immediately fell to the ground got nauseous you know it hurt so bad and I have a very high pain tolerance I mean I've got all these tattoos I have a very high pain tolerance not an issue, but I was at a point where I was almost ready to throw up, Ugh. and I sat there and I realized I'm a hundred miles from nowhere.
1: I'm Doc, and this is the John Freakin' Mirror Pod. Let's start off with a reminder. If you are enjoying the podcast, take just a minute, help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right. This week, I have a real treat for our listeners. Today, I am talking to Benny Braden Jr., whom some of you might recognize from the incredible documentary Highline, which was produced and created by one of our former guests and friend of the podcast, Chris Smead, from Outmersive Films. Welcome to the John Freaking Muir Pod, Benny. How's it going?
2: Hey, doing really good. You doing all right.
1: Absolutely fantastic, good. I'm doing doing even better now that we we have connected and we're we're having the we're having the talk. This is great.
2: Yeah, it, it, sometimes it takes a while to get me to be able to sit down and get in one spot because I'm going in like so many different directions. But we made it happen, so I'm here for as long as we need to be.
1: Okay, fantastic. Hey, I know you've spent uh, quite, a, quite a few uh, miles on the trail. You've got a lot of tra- yeah. trail miles under your, under, your, under your boots. And we have this great, unique American long trail tradition of assigning um, trail names to hikers. Mm-hmm. In all of your time on the trail, have you picked up a trail name?
2: Uh, yeah, actually, my trail name is Plug It In. Um, kind of got that trail name whenever I was hiking in the Smokies. kind of doing like a section hike you know along the AT in 2015 a section hike the lower part of the AT up to Damascus in uh, the Grayson Highlands but I'm an electrical contractor and I was wearing one of my company t-shirts and someone seen it and they were like hey plug it in and it just kind of like stuck from there.
1: Nice. I, I love the name, plug it in, but it is, uh, it is poly polysyllabic, which, you know, in, in case of an emergency on the trail, you mm-hmm. know, getting all those syllables out to warn you of something happening. I mean, that might be uh, a bit too long. Does anybody ever shorten it to just plug? <clears throat>
2: uh, yeah. Some, some people just say plug and, you know, anymore just people call me by my name, Benny, ever since the film came out,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, most people just call me Benny and that's fine too. That's, It's when my parents named me, so I guess that's good enough.
1: (laughs) Okay. So you'll answer to either or all three. Oh, yeah. Okay. Very good. Hey, do you get recognized much um, on the street or on the trail from the film? Uh,
2: Sometimes. uh, Sometimes I do. Uh, Here locally, uh, which back in 2017, I set the fastest known time for the Smokies 900 miler. And I actually did it twice in a single year. Uh, the only there's only like five of us uh, that are on this list uh, that's that's done it, and I'm the only one that's done it twice, um, and definitely in a single year. But that got a lot of local media attention, so a lot of people recognize me from that. Um, but uh, I have been out way out west, and people recognize me from the film, so that's kind of cool. And and I have a, a small little you know, mediocre social media presence. So a few people will like, recognize me from that.
1: Nice. Now let's talk about that FKT real quick. So it's the, the Smokies 900?
2: Yeah, uh, Smokies 900 miler. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually only 800 miles of trail inside the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. But years ago, there used to be 900. And over time, trails, you know, get decommissioned. They no longer maintain them but the name stood, but um, the mileage got lessened. But most people will typically do 1,500 to 2,000 miles somewhere in that neighborhood in order to complete those. Since it's a trail system, a lot of mix and mingling of trails that go in different directions. So it's really hard to do them uh, in a certain way. Um, I know for myself, uh, my first... my First record was 944 miles in 78 days, I think. Uh, my second one, that was a winter wintertime uh, FKT. My second one was in the following fall in the same year. And it was 924 miles in 43 days. Wow. Uh, since then, the record has been broken twice, uh, both by really good friends, Uh who wanted a shot at it, and they did a phenomenal job. Uh, And right now, I think the record's like 28 days or 27 days. Wow. Uh, But my record for the amount of miles, the limited amount of miles, still stands. Uh, I have the most efficient routes at this point. And at the time that I did it, uh, Bullhead was still closed, and one other small trail was closed. So it wasn't like a lot of mileage that was like – Deleted that I did not have to hike. And those were closed from the 2016 uh, Smokey's fire that, that occurred. So, yeah, that kind of gives you a little like uh, rundown of that whole process.
1: Yeah. So, what are the, in terms of the planning and the, and the logistics, I mean, how did, how did you come up with that most efficient route? Did you uh, have a, just have a general sense because of your familiarity or did you have to do some research and kind of map it all out?
2: Well, I was, you know, I was familiar with a little bit. I used a book um, that Lizette and I wrote to basically go towards day hiking. And I essentially took a lot of those day hikes, combined them into like a, a backpacking trip. Um, and that's how I kind of like I trimmed her books based on 1,050 miles. And so I trimmed that down quite a bit by not having to go in and out on a lot of these trails. And whenever I went to do my second one, a good friend of mine had a um, computer program or access to a computer program, kind of like what uh, UPS uses, a lot of cities use to, so that their trucks are driving efficiently in the town. We use that same system. We're able to get a mapping system from the Smokies and overlaid that. And it told me where I was kind of like hiking too much so I was able to trim back my miles uh, even more so and, and the funny thing is between the first and the second hike even more trails were opened up so that just shows you how much more efficiently I was able to like trim that down but but that's how I did I, I basically used a, a software to uh, design for like UPS and in cities municipalities doing their garbage drops.
1: Right. Now that, that brings up a big question for me, because I think there's a, I don't know if it's a myth or if it's actual fact, but uh, something about UPS drivers, because of that mapping software, they only make right turns. And so uh, did that apply to you? Did that apply to you out there in the Smokies? You can, you can can, only make a right turn.
2: I can go left too.
1: Okay. All right. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I can go left.
1: All right. Nice. Very good. Uh, Hey, let's, uh, let's uh i'm gonna give you a heads up on a segment we have towards the end of the episode called the pro tip insight of the week okay. and that's uh, at, at that point i will turn to you and i'll say plug it in what 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 bit of trail wisdom can you share with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better so i expect you to drop trail wisdom throughout the episode here but you'll still be on the hook for uh, the official pro tip at the end there i got it okay Hey, another feature we've been doing this season is the must-bring gear review sponsored by the ultralight backpacking gear company, Outdoor Vitals. And here's how it works. If you were to let a stranger pack your bag with pretty much generic gear uh, for a multi-day hike, what is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? And if you've got a particular brand for that specific piece of gear, even better. So plug it in. What's your must-bring piece of gear?
2: Uh, I would say my CPACS duplex. I've been using that tent since 2015. Um, matter of fact, got my, one of my duplexes right there. Um, I don't know, just been able to have that extra room inside the tent. You know, I've got plenty of room just for me. And if it's been a rainy, wet day and I'm all like nasty, I can throw all my wet gear, all my wet clothes on one side of the tent. And I've got this nice dry place on the other. And super lightweight, typically, I think most of those run about 21 ounces or something like that for a two person tent. Really solid, um, hasn't ever let me down. I've actually used it in uh, 14 negative 14 degree temperatures. Wow. Um, I've used it in like remnants of tropical storms, so very high wind situations, uh, blizzard situations. So it's it's a pretty solid tent for for what it is.
1: Now is that the tent that you were using in the film, Highline?
2: Uh yeah. Actually. Actually, that one is the one I was using in Highline. Mm-hmm. Uh, several camo duplexes.
1: <clears throat> yeah, it and, looked uh, like it looked like a number of the guys were using that same tent. It looked very similar.
2: Uh yeah. Uh, some of them were using um, probably using like a plexamid or mm-hmm. an altiplex or something like that. Uh, Duplex is pretty popular uh, just because of the weight and the amount of room that you get in it. Uh, a lot of people really like that tent, and I don't blame them. Uh, it's it's been a rock solid tent for me. I've not ever had any like major issues or failures from that tent. Uh, I've gotten some situations where I've damaged my tent before. Uh, Whenever I was on the John Muir Trail, just before we did Highline, uh, you know, doing it late summer, you're dealing with a lot of thunderstorms. So As soon as I would hear lightning or, or thunder, I would pull over, set my tent up, get in it, get out of the hail and rain, and eat me a quick snack, take me a short nap, and by then that Storm's gone. I can get back on the trail and push for more miles. And just that really quick set up, take down. Uh, some of the times the storm was on me. So I need to be very fast and might not look for like sharp rocks or something like that. Because everything's granite out there. And everything's right. not forgiving. Uh, it's not like here in the east where we're dealing with a lot of sand and stone or limestone. So it was... Uh, I'd gotten like a small little hope in, uh, in one of my things. So in, in the bottom and in my netting, and I think it's either from a rock or just where I just building it up really quick and shoving it into pack and picking up more miles. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, since we're, we're going to get into a little bit of a gear discussion here before I forget, uh, in the movie Highline, you're hiking with four other guys. There's five, five buddies out there hiking and we're, we'll, we'll talk about the movie a uh, l- little bit later, but um, there's a backstory for each of you. And I was really intrigued mm-hmm. not only by your story, but also by, by Joe's story. Mm-hmm. And he started up this, this uh, backpacking gear company. But I think because of probably some contractual issue, he never revealed what the name of the backpacking company backpacking gear company was in the film. Are you at Liberty to, to share the name of that backpacking gear company?
2: Uh, yeah, I would say so. No one's ever told me I can't. Okay, um, Yeah. It's Z Oh, he started um, up Z Yeah. Yeah. Joe started up Z packs and uh, Matt was the very first employee mm-hmm. outside family employee. And, um, and uh, will was an employee at the Mm -hmm. time and um steve was a customer like myself you know who just made connections and we all just kind of hit it off so we you know we did a lot of hikes together Mm -hmm. and uh so yeah it's it's cpacs and they're based out of melbourne florida
1: yeah yeah that makes sense now because as you guys are setting up camp in the film um you guys all have very similar tents and you just revealed that that was a, a Z-Packs duplex. So if he's got a backpacking gear company, I mean, that, that totally makes sense. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah definitely. And, you know, I kind of stumbled across uh, Z-Packs in 2015 um, from watching Will Woods videos and cause Will has, or had a b- very big YouTube channel at the time. And you know, he had just through hike to AT and used Z-Pack's gear. And and that's how it kind of got on my radar. So I just started, you know, researching and purchasing. And, um, you know, I was I guess I was buying just so much gear because all my major gear became Z-Pack's gear,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, because number one, it, it was durable. It was handling what I was putting it through and it was super lightweight and allowing me to go further, uh, and be more comfortable on my hikes. And, we just kind of hit it off. Me and Matt probably hit it off more than, than anybody else. But, um, so me and Matt, even today still go on hikes all over the world together. Um, so that's kind of cool. Fantastic.
1: All right. Hey, this next section is a, uh, it's what I call the hiking pole and It's uh, not P-O-L-E it's P-O-L-L like in a survey. I'm going to ask you six questions. Maybe more if we get off tangent here, but uh, these six questions will help me give you a score on a scale of one to a hundred with 100 being completely sane and one being absolutely bonkers. So this is the the crazy poll here. You ready? Yes, sir. Okay. Trekking poles or no trekking poles?
2: Trekking poles just cause I need them for my tent. A lot of times oh, just carry okay. Them. Yeah. A lot of times I'm just carrying them. You know, unless I need to cross the stream, then they're extremely handy. You
1: know, I've asked this question many times already this season, and that's the first time I've gotten that answer. Yep. Trekking poles for my tent.
2: Yep. Okay. Because yeah, that's how it sets up. It, it needs poles to set up. It doesn't come with, like, you know, regular tent poles, let's say, like an REI tent or something like that. Um, but, yeah, that's – and I've toyed with the idea of just using because the, they sell like a tent type pole to, for that. But uh, just because there's situations where you get in where you're crossing a, a sketchy stream or something, those trekking poles really help you stay sturdy in those situations. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, it's worth carrying them. Plus, it gives my hand something to do, you know, kind of like swinging. It keeps right. the blood flowing.
1: That's right. I'm not sure if that answer gives you a five-point deduction or a five-point addition. I'm going to I'm gonna have to think that through a little bit. Okay. Next question. Boots or trail runners? Trail runners. Trail runners. Do you have a particular brand of trail runners you, you prefer?
2: Uh, I like Ultra. Ultra mm-hmm. seems to be working for me. I've used Brooks in the past. Um, never tried Hoka. Um, given that some consideration, I've got a Uh, a friend a new friend that is um a rep for hoka so i may i may go purchase a pair of shoes and just try them out see what the see what the buzz is but right now i'm using the uh ultra olympus fours
1: olympus fours okay Mm
2: -hmm.
1: all right i know i know that the lone peak is a very popular one but the olympus
2: yeah i do have the Lone Peak fives Mm -hmm. um I do have those. Those are great shoes. I use them, like, as an everyday shoe or maybe, like, a travel shoe or something like that. But if I'm on trail, I like the the Olympus works pretty good. Um, it has a little extra cushion than the long peaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing I don't like about them is the lugs stick out a little bit. And if you're not very careful, you can, like, nick your other leg with the tread. And, yeah. Um, Just like with, you know, John Mirtrell, you got granite dust all over your feet and that granite like scrapes all the skin off of your ankles and stuff like that whenever the treads hit. So that was an unpleasant experience.
1: Yeah, I've got a pair of hokas that I use for running and I find that I do that while I'm running. I will occasionally graze uh yeah. my my calf with the edge of that shoe. Yeah, it's not uh that's not good. Yeah,
2: in the in the Olympus, they're they are a very wide base shoe. Mm-hmm. So they have a very wide footprint. And that I guess that's for stability. And I get it. And they are great like stable shoes, but you've got to be thinking about what's on your feet and, and make adjustments for that. Um but otherwise I mean the the long peak fives, I I really like them a lot.
1: Yeah. Now, the Brooks, were those, were those Brooks Cascadias?
2: Uh, I started out with the Cascadia 9. Okay. You know, I kind of learned that from Will. Will was using, he was a big uh, advocate for the Cascadia 9. And just like most of these shoe companies, Ultra in the, is in the same boat as that. You have this great shoe that everybody loves it, and then they want to change it. And then it turns to junk. And yeah. Nobody wants to use it. So that's what happened to the Cascadia. Uh, I started using the Cascadia 12 and ended up getting plantar fasciitis Mm. from using that shoe. And so I switched from that to the Caldera, the Brooks Caldera, which is a great shoe too. But when I was in Scotland, it's so wet in Scotland that my insole was doing circles around my feet um, because so much water and floating around so i just pulled them out and hiked without insoles and uh the last 8 miles i ended up getting shin splints in in one of my shins so that was that's was the last time i ever put a pair of brooks on my feet after that it was all all um all ultra
1: ultra yeah yeah, I was in a pair of Merrill boots to start off with, and I transitioned from that to a pair of Brooks Cascadia. I'm not sure what number the Cascadia, mm-hmm. Cascadia's were, but it was kind of a last-second purchase. I was just, I made, made a decision. I'm not going in boots again because all I thought about was my feet uh, when I was out there on the trail in boots. And I had a hike coming up, and I just happened to pick out the Cascadia's, and they were fantastic. Game-changer in terms of uh, how I felt out there on the trail. And now I've I've kind of migrated over to the the ultras.
2: Yeah, when I started back into backpacking in 2015, I started out in boots. You know, I think I forget even the brand. It's pretty a popular boot uh, that a lot of people use, but uh I would get hot spots. So yeah. then I switched over to the Cascadias and I would still get hot spots with the Cascadias to the point where afterwards it would end up being a blister or something like that. But once I switched over to, um, the caldera and, and, uh, the limb, you know, ultras had no problem. And it's probably because the caldera and, and the ultras spread the feed out a little bit more where those cascadias, they're kind of tight and they kind of squeeze the feed in on,
1: mm-hmm.
2: on a bit. So I would say that's probably my problem with them.
1: Okay. Now this next question, I think I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, tent, tarp, or hammock? Tent. tent definitely
2: yep. a tent i've had a hammock before um uh i've got a friend that lives over in south carolina used to own bonfire gear and uh he made custom hammocks and they were uh the underquilt was sewn in so that was really neat you didn't have to worry about like adjusting your underquilt. uh i think it was ready for like 30 degrees it was a double layer so you could still slide in a pad in there if you wanted to nice it had a net you know sewn into it um it was like cadillac of of hammocks i think it weighed like two pounds or something like that that was straps all together so it's like very low weight um i just can't handle a hammock i can i can take a nap in one during the day but i cannot sleep in one at night i move around way too much so yeah. when i'm in my tent i'm able to let road flip whatever but yeah. I like having a tent. I like being able to spread out and, you know, you know, just like with the duplex, you have two vestibules. So if something's coming in one door, I can be exiting out the other <laughs> door. So that makes it nice. nice. Not that anything's ever done that.
1: Contingency plan. There you go. Contingency. Yep. All right. Sleeping bag or quilt?
2: Uh, sleeping bag, but I use mine as a quilt.
1: Okay. All you open hat. it up and... Yeah. Got
2: it. Yeah. I'll zip it all the way, which the Z-Pack sleeping bags, the zippers on the bottom.
3: Uh-huh.
2: So you sleep on it. So to keep from getting like a cold drafting. So uh-huh. I'll usually just unzip mine, just use it as a quilt. This way I can control the amount of air that comes in and um, you get maximum loft whenever you do that. Uh-huh. And so a lot of times I find myself even in the causes of temperatures not having to wear that much clothing to uh to stay warm.
1: okay now plug it in this is an important question here this next one is really going to determine where you fall on the on the scale so stove cold soak or stoveless
2: (sighs) kind of a mix uh here in the last in the last year or so i've been using the stove prior to that I code soaked. Oh. And even depends, even today, depending on the trip and the time of year, I may still code soak. Um, I do love my coffee in the morning. I've become very like addicted to that. Um, but honestly, if it wasn't for the coffee, I'd probably code soak because I can technically code soak all of my meals and and wouldn't have no problem doing that. That coffee, you gotta have it. <laughs> now,
1: what is the what is your best go-to cold soak meal?
2: Um, well, I mean, oatmeal is so easy; it's like ridiculous. Um, a lot of times, you know, maybe some couscous uh, mixed in with maybe some uh, dehydrated veggies or something like that. Um, I've got, uh, like I'll use like evergreen adventure meals or something of that nature. They're a dehydrated meal that is in compostable packaging. It's all you know, all plant-based and all that. Uh, I find myself being able to code soak some of those meals. Uh, they have like a chili mac that, that I can code soak or maybe a lentil stew that code soaks pretty decent. Um, but occasionally, you know, I still like heating up some water and putting it in there and having it, you know, especially if you've been hiking into cold temperatures, you know, you've been out there for for days. Sometimes that warm meal is just enough to get you through, you know, to the next day, uh, so I no longer attempt to cold soak in winter. Winter time, uh, I like to have a stove, you know, and it also works as a safety device. Things go wrong, you'd warm up your hands, you know, you're trying to bite off frostbite, something like that. Uh, it, it's a great, you know, emergency heat source.
1: Now, unfortunately, Benny, you stumbled across a four-word combination that's an automatic 10-point deduction, and that was a uh, oh. cold-soak Chili Mac. That's it's just uh, that's quite the combo right there. I'm, I it, apologize.
2: It's, it's one you have to, like, you have to have a a very strong palate. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay. Hey, uh, long trails, American long trails all run north to south or south to north, depending on your perspective, or should they be hiked northbound or southbound?
2: Um, whichever direction everybody else isn't going.
1: Okay. Very good. I like that answer. I like that, that you just yeah, made up some points I, I right there.
2: Do, I don't do crowds too well. And, uh, you know, I always try to strive to leave, no impact wherever I go. Uh, you know, whenever I'm camping, I never do a campfire, you know, unless someone else is doing the campfire, then I'll go enjoy that one. But <laughs> I'm not gonna build one on my own because I don't wanna leave that impact. And so a lot of times you don't even know my tent has been setting in where it was setting at. Um, but, you know, I just think we can all do something. And if that means going in the opposite direction, then maybe that will help, you know, because you're not flowing with the flow of traffic. So you have all these groups of people camping in one area and heavily impacting an area. And then you got to think they're all going to the bathroom too. So and not all of them know how to do that properly. So we're dealing with all that. And then if I'm going the other direction, I can blow by heavily impacted areas and get into an area that's not that impacted, or maybe get off trail enough to where I'm in an area that's not impacted at all, and uh, sit there and, and you know camp for the night and move on.
1: Well, plug it in. I really enjoyed those answers. Let me let me do some quick math here. Let's see. You uh, got to carry <laughs> the three. Going to divide by two, multiply by pi. This is one of the highest scores we've had in this. You you score, you score you score an 80, 84. 84, solid. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty sane. Very good. Hey, let's back up a little bit before we get too far down the trail. Uh, I'd love to hear where you grew up and how you got involved in in hiking.
2: Uh, I grew up in a little bitty town in East Tennessee called Oliver Springs. Really like tiny, tiny town. Um, It's just kind of on the outskirts of Oak Ridge. Oak Ridge is uh, one of the towns that where they helped make components for the atomic bomb way back in the 1940s. Uh, matter of fact, Oak Ridge also has the uh, nickname as a secret city. The The town was actually gated off. Anybody who worked at the, at the plants where they made uh, all the materials, they lived inside the city and no one else was allowed in. And so everything was in there that you would need, like shopping centers, whatever, but they would not let you, you know, you had to go through a guarded gate kind of like how a little bit, how Los Alamos is right now. Now, if you take certain roads going into Los Alamos, you know, there's going to be a guard shack there and there's going to be a guard there to see what you're doing, what you're planning on doing and stuff like that. That was basically kind of the same thing, except a lot more restricted way back, way back when, but uh, City of Oak Ridge has gone past that now. You know, they do a lot more. Uh, the city's grown. They no longer have gates. Uh, one of the one or two of the government plants have actually shut down. Uh, it's more of a technology thing now. One of the plants have been turned into a um, plant where they do like the supercomputer, like the world's fastest supercomputer exists there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so that's really cool. They're doing a lot of that technology. And still, like Y-12, they still do weaponry and different things of that nature and deal with nuclear stuff. Uh, So there's still some component of of stuff like that going on there, but outside that, Oak Ridge is just like a normal town that you would drive to. But but Oliver Springs is just on the outside of that, right at the very edge of the Cumberland Plateau, the Cumberland Mountains, uh, rise up. And you'll, uh, a lot of coal, A lot of coal mines and stuff like that used to exist. My father was a coal miner, and um, very few of those actually exist here now. And were you an only child? Uh, No, um, I was the oldest child. Um, I had one sibling, and he was born in in 73, and I was born in – no, he was born in 75. I was born in 73. That was just me and my little brother there growing up.
1: Mm -hmm. And I know from the film Highline and the story that you shared there that uh, he passed and you adopted his, his two daughters.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We adopted his two daughters and um, one of them's already grown up and moved out and the other one, she's 16 and learning how to drive and we'll be getting her driver's license hopefully on Monday. And uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's really cool. It's, just me and her here, a lot of a lot of things in, in life change, you know, and stuff like that. So um I'm no longer married and it's just me and my daughter here. And uh she's already graduated. She she did the Penn Foster thing. So, so oh, wow. She's already graduated, ready to move on into adulthood and, and all that.
1: Well, we wish here at the, the John Freaky Mirror probably we wish her the best of luck on Monday in her driver's test.
2: Yes. Yes, definitely. I'm, I'm tired of chauffeuring.
1: (laughs) You're going to get, you're going to get a little bit of freedom back once she, once she can drive herself a
2: little bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now, how did, how did you get involved in, in through hiking? How did, how did it, how did the idea occur to you? It'd be a good idea to throw everything on your back and and be out in the, in the wilderness for days and weeks on end.
2: No, probably watching Will's videos. Um, In 2000. 14, I guess I was binge watching all of his videos um, and really got that bug back. Obviously, growing up in East Tennessee, you're in a lot of rural areas. I live in a rural area. Um, so you have a lot of access to woods and trails. And so I grew up playing in the woods. I mean, my grandparents lived at the very edge of the Cumberland Plateau and they had like a line of cliffs that bordered their property. And you could just see out across the East Tennessee Valley all the way over to the Smoky Mountains on a clear day. And so we were always out playing and doing different things. And um, my high school spring break, I went to a a national um, recreation area called Big South Fork. So I went there to backpack and camp while everybody else went to you know, uh, probably Panama City or somewhere else to party at the beach. I was doing my woods thing, but, um, I kind of stepped away from that, uh, quite a few years and especially my early twenties doing first responder stuff like that, uh, took up a lot of my time. So I wasn't like, I didn't want to be away, uh, in case, you know, I needed to respond to something. So once I retired out of all that, I kind of started considering getting back into backpacking and Will's videos were just like bringing me like sucking me into that zone again. So I started just section hiking on the AT little sections here and there, you know, three day, you know, four days, something like that. Sometimes just a two day. And, um, slowly I could feel, I could feel a little bit of peace because at that point I was beginning to struggle with my PTS. Yeah. And, um, and, and deal with all that and i was getting just a little bit of peace every time i would go out and it would last for a few days you know afterwards and then i would be right back to all like amped up um uh, you know struggling with with all that and then the longer i would go the longer that would last mm-hmm. uh, so i really didn't get the full benefit until i started doing those 900 because I treated those 900 miles like I was through hiking. Um, the first one, not so much because I had to, I was still, the first FKT, I was still working three days a week. Uh, so that kind of gives you an idea. Sure. You know, I was working three days a week, and I still was able to put down some decent record. But the second one, I did stay. You know, I did camp every night. I did come home. Um So I I would do a Z I didn't do zeros obviously, but I would go into town, resupply and come back out, you know, uh, maybe take a shower at a friend's house and get back in the woods. But, um, that's where I really started getting good benefit Uh from being out. And then after that, I started doing through hikes, doing through hikes. You know, I started out doing like the art lobe, something really simple, you know, a little 30 miler. So I did art lobe, did, um, foothills uh trail so foothills about 73 76 somewhere in that neighborhood so i started baby stepping myself up and you know next thing you know you're doing you know the long trail i'm doing the bent kite so we're, we're punching into close to 300s um and then the summer that we did highline i started out doing the long trail came home repacked, did the jmt didn't get to come home, stayed out there, stayed in Vegas for a day or two, and then went on into Salt Lake and then met up with the rest of the guys. So that was a long stretch of being away from work, number one, but also being away from family, uh, which was a struggle. You know, you don't like being away from your family that long.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: You enjoy getting out there and you enjoy getting away from the craziness that family brings. But when you're out there, he craved to be with family. Yeah. So it's like, you it's that constant like struggle. It's like you want the peace, but you also want the family.
1: Yep. Yeah. So,
2: that's totally get that a struggle.
1: Yeah. Yep. Now you, you, uh, you mentioned a couple things there and also in Highline that they, they really go into, into some of your background. So I hope it's okay if I share some of your yeah, background with, with our listeners yeah. here. So
2: yeah, I am very open with my story.
1: Okay. All right. So you mentioned PTS, it's not PTSD yes. in, in your mind. It's PTS It's post-traumatic stress. There's no disorder, <laughs> excuse, excuse me. And that really kind of came about because you, you were, you had, your career was in wasn't you were an EMT and involved in water rescue and you over the course of your career, you saw some some pretty horrific things.
2: Yeah, I, I was um, I was an EMT uh, for quite a few years and uh, volunteered with a local fire department, uh, with a local rescue squad and worked um, with a local ambulance service as an EMT. Mm-hmm. Um, I taught vehicle extrication, so I taught other departments how to use the jaws of life. I uh-huh. uh, also taught swift water rescue with the state of Tennessee, so I taught other rescuers how to read the water and how to make that decision of whether you go in an attempt to save this person or you or you don't. Uh-huh. Um, there's a risk benefit thing that we always weigh whenever we're in rescue. Obviously, the benefit has to outweigh the risk. And, and if it's the other way around, then, then it's a no-go. Uh, and sometimes that's really hard, you know, unless you can, like, lay eyes on somebody and you know that you can save them and stuff like that. Um, and obviously, as rescuers, we do everything that we possibly can. We're not just going to walk away and say, ah, oh, it's too, too bad. We figure out a way to do it safely. So it may take us a minute to figure out a better way Uh, to guarantee that everybody goes home but but yeah you know doing um doing the extrications you know we have i-40 that runs right through our county so we have a lot of vehicle accidents a lot of times are very uh very horrific Uh you know accidents they can get pretty gnarly Uh, i was also a rescue diver so i headed our water rescue team here in our county and uh so we would recover you know drowning victims uh, or maybe even just stolen property for the sheriff's department. You know, we would do that stuff too. But unfortunately, in in, in those in those areas, you you see a lot of stuff. You know? Yeah. And the old adage, "Once seen, can't be unseen," is very true. Uh-huh. And those things make a mark. And post-traumatic stress (PTS) uh, definitely is not a disorder by no means it's actually injury to the brain it's like you're you're experiencing something so traumatic so like not normal that your brain is scarred from it your brain it's almost like it glitches yeah if i if i was to explain it and kind of like how i explained in my in the documentary you know um i believe that in those situations at the the brain will actually cut out sections of time, you know, cut out, let, let's say a traumatic incident.
3: Uh-huh.
2: It's going to cut that out and it's going to set that over here so you can function normal. But anytime you deal with trauma, you know, you hear the whole thing of shock. That whole shock section, I believe, is where the brain is actively taking pieces, figuring out what it needs to delete or put in archive so that you can function normal. Otherwise, yeah, it's a de- you're def- going dwelling defense, on
1: this. It's a defense mechanism, survival survival skill. Yeah. yeah.
2: Exactly. So as it's clipping, you know, pieces of memory out, sometimes it pulls a little bit more than what it needs. And that gets really, like, aggravating whenever it does that. So because there's a lot of things you, you forget. You know, you forget different aspects aspects of life you know things that occurred or whatever that were good things and so I find myself um you know not being able to remember you know a lot of different things in certain time periods that you know that makes it kind of tough and then all of a sudden I may have like a something may happen and trigger a memory and the brain allows this little piece to come back and put in place but like I said in the film you know I'm I'm cleaning off my desk when I'm out there, like Uh hiking, I'm going through all these images and trying to like, make sense of it. You know, maybe pray about it and maybe just try to just figure out, you know, or maybe just come to peace with, okay, I did everything I could do in that situation. Yeah. I could have not, I couldn't have gotten there any quicker. I couldn't have Uh done anything to change the outcome of that or whatever. Then I'm able to put that back in the file where it goes and, Eventually, the pile on my desk will go away, but you know, until then, I'm I'm going to be cleaning off my desk.
1: Yep, and I think you also used a phrase uh, saying that you were softened by the trail, and that I think that's a beautiful way to put it. That I think a lot of folks start mm-hmm. off on the trail with a lot of rough edges, and and the trail mm-hmm. has this fantastic ability to soften those soften those edges and kind of restore. Um, a bit of sanity.
2: Yeah, I, I think it humbles you really good. Um, I mean, you understand that you aren't in control out there. That the least little thing can like kill you. You know, it's it's that easy, and so you have to be aware of that, and you have to be. You know, I don't know exactly how to explain it but you almost have to be willing to just accept the fact that you aren't in control and um you're at you're at the mercy of your creator and hoping that you know you're on good terms (laughs) you know because a lot of nasty things can happen out there you know Mm -hmm. you, you know like in scotland people like die in peat bogs you know, all the time, or you know, out west people fall off cliffs and you know, or like here, people drowned, you know, that were good swimmers. You know, you just there's no yeah rhyme or reason, it's just that when you're in the outdoors, anything is like capable of like taking you out. <laughs>
1: that that is that's an interesting perspective. That's an interesting way to put it that that you're not in control. I think others might argue that when they're in, in city life and the phone is ringing and they've got appointments and they've got meetings and they've got everything else that is difficult to feel in control in that reality and that they yeah. feel like they have more control over themselves of their decisions of when they're starting and stopping and what
2: they're doing when they're out there on the trail. Yeah. They may be able to, you know, say, okay, I'm starting then I'm, I'm ending then. Mm-hmm. But you twist a knee, break a leg, whatever. You're stopping whenever that occurs. You're not going any further. Or if it starts hailing softball-sized hail, you're not going any further. You know. Hopefully, you don't get a concussion. Um, so it's just stuff like that. It's it's like you're in control of your piece. I would say,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and, and that might be one that you know someone could like dig into a little bit deeper but um that would be about the only control i could see i like to think i'm in control because i'll wait i'll say like okay i'm going to here you know we're going to do good or i'm going to stop here and i'm going to fish this and then i'm going to go at the end of the day you end up where you end up you know because half the time i'll get to where i want to go and it's like eh, i think i can push for a little bit more right you know get a little insurance you know for the trip Yep, and uh, so push a little bit forward. That's less I have to do later. And so, if later, if I want to do a zero or Nero or just do a late start, I can do that. I have that built in at that point. Uh, I like calling that insurance. So it gives me gives me wiggle room. Very appropriate. That's
1: a that's a fair point. That uh, you, you may you may have starting and stopping times in mind, but all it takes is is one misstep or uh, softball size hail. So.
2: Good it's time. like when i was on the jmt uh just before that before we did highline i had planned if i shouted, steel. still so i'm stepping off of a step and i'm wearing my calderas and they got that really soft um patch on the heel like super super soft
3: mm-hmm.
2: and i step on a piece of granite that's pointed up and it hits right on um, I guess a cyst that had grown around a nerve from the plantar fasciitis and it broke it, it Broke it. and I immediately fell to the ground, got nauseous, you know, it hurt so bad. And I have a very high pain tolerance. I mean, I've got all these tattoos. I have a very high pain tolerance, not an issue, but I was at a point where I was almost ready to throw up. Ugh. And I sat there and I realized I'm a hundred miles from nowhere. I'm like, I'm gonna have to walk out here. I have no like GPS Garmin thing, I don't have nothing. I'm gonna have to like walk my happy butt out of this situation. And I sat there for a little bit and you know, then got up, started walking, limping. But gradually, by the end of the day, my foot never hurt again. It was done.
1: Wow, you just tucked it out.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it, it just, it didn't, it stopped hurting. It, it no, never hurt again. Hmm. Um, that scar tissue spread away off that nerve, so that nerve is no longer being pinched. And the scar tissue was out of the way where it's not putting pressure on anything else. So it worked out really good. I ended up going and getting therapy later to kind of deal with some of that scar tissue to break that up. But,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but yeah, that that was a close point to where My hike could
1: have been done. Yeah. Yep. Out of your control. Yep. Okay. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear some more stories from the trail and hear about some other things that Plug It In is involved with. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. From the backcountry to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. The John Freakin' Muir Pod is sponsored by Outdoor Vitals, the ultralight backpacking gear company whose mission is to improve the mental, physical and emotional health of mankind by facilitating impactful outdoor experiences. Outdoor Vitals creates innovative technical products with confidence-inspiring education that empower outdoor ultralight adventurers. Their focus on performance enables you to live ultralight with gear you can actually be confident with. Whether you're looking for an ultralight sleep system, shelter, or pack, or if you're looking for top quality apparel for the trail, you can find it at Outdoor Vitals. Do yourself a favor. Live ultralight. Want to make a podcast? And Welcome back. We were talking to Benny Braden Jr., also known as Plug It In or Just Plug, and uh, heard a little bit there about uh, some of his experiences on the trail and a little bit about the, the movie Highline. Um, let's talk about one of our favorite trails on the podcast, and that is the John Muir Trail. And I know that you've done it twice, did it in 2018 and 2021. I did. I actually did the southern half of the JMT this past this past summer. So I'm curious as to what were the dates that you were on the trail this, this last year,
2: Uh, this past year, I was there from August 19th or 16th, all the way through like September 5th. Okay. Um, Matter of fact, whenever we left Yosemite, we were on the last yards bus of the year to Mammoth.
1: Okay. okay. So I, you, you went after me. I, I was on the trail. We dropped in at uh midway point Muir trail ranch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was probably July 28th and then uh, finished up seven days later on mm-hmm. top of Whitney. Nice. So, yeah.
2: Very nice. Now. Yeah. I like the John Muir trail, it's, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think there's a more beautiful place other than, you know, in the Uintas. Uh, I think both of those look very similar. In, yes, in that's what aspect. I've heard.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: uh, In some ways are different. In some ways they're, they're very much alike. And so I, I'm at a lot, of, I get a lot of peace being in the Sierra. It's almost like a uh, holy ground almost, if you can say uh, there's just something about them that, there's a different, you know, we don't have mountains like that here in the east, you know, number one. Uh, Nothing nowhere near that tall or they don't even look the same and just being able to be out there and be in different terrain to be on a trail that, you know, has such um, such history. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's that's, it's just really cool to be out there to, to know that I'm hiking on the same trail that so many others, you know, have hiked.
1: Right. And I probably have a seventh question I should add to the hiking poll, And that is, is it better above the tree line or below the tree line? Because being a Tennessee boy, I mean, you've got, you've got a lot of trees out your way and there is a lot of beautiful property on the JMT that is above the tree line.
2: Or above tree line, hands down.
1: Yeah. I thought, I, mean, I thought you'd say that.
2: Yeah. I'm, i get get enough trees here. I'm, you know, I don't need any more trees whenever I get out there, unless they're big redwoods, you know, then I'm all about, you know, those, those big, beautiful redwoods. But um, yeah, just something about being above tree lines, especially in the Sierra, there's nothing else like it.
1: Agreed. Do you have a uh, a favorite memory or story or, or even a campsite from the JMT?
2: Uh, I I have this last time uh We stealth camped uh, off the side of um, Cloud Dressed, and we had a spectacular view, uh, was able to get some great night shots from it, uh, from that same spot, and some great sunset shots, so that worked out really good. And actually, Will Wood had a video of where he camped, so I was kind of looking for it, Found it, wasn't really that impressed with it, and just kept looking and found a different spot. You can see where a lot of people camp in different spots.
3: Uh-huh.
2: But um, I talked to a ranger earlier the next morning and say, hey, I don't know if it's okay, but I was here. And um, they were like, no, it's, it's definitely okay. We want to see people disperse this way. There's less of an impact on a single area. And uh, so that was encouraging to hear a park say that because we don't get, parks don't have that mentality here in the East. They want everybody in one spot and those spots are just, you know, just horrifically like impacted.
1: Right. Now, when you, before you summited Whitney in 2018 and 2021, where did you camp the night before?
2: Guitar Lake.
1: Okay. I have a, I have a, I have a lake on both Okay. I have a tip for you. I have a, a, a tip for you. If you, if you're going to be on the JMT this year and there is an old timer told, told me about this a couple of trips back. And he said, you know, the primo spot that a lot of people don't know about, there is a, you know, where the sign is that says Mount Whitney, 1.9 miles. Mm-hmm. It's kind of up by uh, uh trail crest mm-hmm. that there's a sign up there right below that sign, just above the trail is a, there's a spot there for six or eight, uh, six or eight campers yep. and yeah, yeah, there's no water up there. You got to bring your own water up, but yeah. it, the view is spectacular. Yeah. It is spectacular. And the last couple of times I've done this, I have camped there and I've gotten up there in the late afternoon, set up camp and then head up to Whitney for a sunset summit. And it, it basically I'm the only guy up there and it is just gorgeous.
2: That is amazing. I typically hit uh, Whitney for a sunrise like a lot of people do.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Um, probably one of my most memorable ones was, um, I would say whenever I would, I did the in 2020,
3: uh-huh.
2: uh, we were up there doing our normal stuff, you know, that morning. And someone had said, Hey, look, there's a shadow. And I turned and looked back, you know, east, I mean, West, and you could see the shadow of Mount Whitney, that the sun was like, Making because you have all the fade, you know, haze and fog and all that, right? Uh, different stuff in the air to kind of like where you can see shadow against the sky. And so I was able to catch, you know, with my camera, the shadow of Mount Whitney. So that was really cool. Uh, and also on that trip, we had a full moon and we never used our headlamps the first time as we were climbing up Mount Whitney. So that was really neat, you know, with everything being granite and the light reflecting off all that white rock, um, you're really made for a neat, unique summit. So that was one of my, probably my favorite summit. I've summited Whitney three times and uh, that was by far my favorite.
1: Nice. I mean, there's something about when you're, when you're hiking with a headlamp, there's this, you're in a bubble of light and you only, you kind of, because of your eyes and the, and the headlamp, you're just seeing, you know, what the headlight is illuminating. And I have to imagine that with a full moon and no headlamp, you had to see a whole lot more that had to be a pretty cool experience.
2: Yeah. It definitely opened it up. Obviously your eyes get used to that and I try not to use my headlamp too much anyways, but it was really neat, you know, being able to climb Whitney and look down at Hitchcock and, yeah, you know, look back at guitar and just still be able to see those things, you know, because of the, the full moon and all that. So that was really neat. And um, man, he's talking about a magical moment. That was really cool.
1: Yeah. Now, have you um, on the High Sierra Trail you hiked that in 2020?
2: Uh, yes, uh, in 2020. Actually, we hiked it. We were there just days after the whitney earthquake oh wow remember that
1: yeah, yeah i do they had
2: you know we were trying to like communicate with Forest service you know um because they emailed us our, our permit but we were trying to see because we were exiting whitney portal we had someone coming and picking us up
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so we weren't sure if we we're gonna have to if we could even get down the mountain or if once we were down there if we can even go down the road if the road was missing or whatever we had no idea what the Destruction would was. But fortunately, by the time we got there, they had it open back up. And um, I never want to do those switchbacks ever again in my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Now, so you finished at Whitney. Did you start at Crescent Meadow? I did. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And that's about what, 71, 75 miles? Something along those lines?
2: Something like that. I wish they would figure that out. That's uh I hate being on a trail where they don't know the actual mileage of the trail. It's like, come on, somebody's gotta know this. And and there's gotta be, especially with an official site or something like that, somebody Mm -hmm. really has to like you know, do some math. Let's figure out what these miles are because those are important.
1: That's right. That's right. Details. Let's get the details details
2: right. That's it.
1: Now, some friends and I, we, we hiked, uh, we did an out and back. So we, we hiked some of the High Sierra Trail a few years back. We went from Crescent Meadow out to uh, Precipice Lake, which is just above Hamilton Lakes, and, and, then, uh, and then back again. So I'm planning this summer. I already have a permit. It's the end of, end of June, which is going to be interesting to see what, kind of, what the snow conditions are at the end mm-hmm. of June. Um, but going to hike the whole thing finish up nice. at Whitney and get picked up at Whitney portal. Although I, I've gone on on this podcast before and said that my least favorite section of any trail on the planet is from the top of Whitney down to uh, Whitney portal. That is, that is a, yeah. not an enjoyable James trail, down. even going, even down. going down downhill. I mean, it's, it's not any fun at all.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's trails in the Smokies that are extremely difficult and I had to do them a couple of times just so I could do the 900 miler uh-huh. um, that I'd never want to do those trails again. I mean, they're like that bad. I hate them. But um, that Whitney trail, I, I would rather have a kidney stone. <laughs> because I, anything, anything, but making me go down that again. That's a strong that's, a strong, that's a strong statement. By.
1: That's a strong yeah. statement. Rather, rather have a kidney stone. Rather have a kidney stone, <laughs> folks. Quote that's how. That's it. how bad that is. Yes.
2: <laughs> Quote me on it. Put it there.
1: Now plug it in. You, you've you've been all over the place: the Smokies, the Sierras, uh, Scotland, Turkey, the Uintas. Uh, have you ever had a experienced a moment where you said? what in the heck am I doing out here? This was, this was not a good decision. This is not safe or any kind of Holy cow moments out there.
2: Um, the last time I did the TGO over in Scotland, the great outdoor challenge, uh, it's where you make your own route. So some, some areas that you're going, there's no trail and there hasn't been a trail there in like forever. So you're in the, in the middle of the highlands, going through peat bogs, going up, scaling up sides of mountains that, you know, look like they're ready to crumble. And we were dropping down. We went over one little spot and came down. And I had to throw my trekking poles off. And uh, I was thinking, man, this this is so sketchy. This isn't going to be good. But another, we end up, you know, everything was okay. But when it comes to... The worst spot was on the long trail. Going up over Mansfield, it was raining, it was storming, rain was blowing in sideways. And to climb Mansfield, whenever you're doing the long trail, you have to go up some ladders, you have to like jump some like rock crevices. And with everything being slick and wet, that made it even worse. And, um, we uh, this girl from Montreal. We end up connecting with her, me, Matt, and Will. We're, were doing long trails, so she's hiking with us. And uh, one spot that Matt had to grab her, she almost was like fall. I mean, in this rock crevice, we're we can see the tops of trees are like level with us. That's how like deep and long this is. So we get up on uh, Summit Mansfield, and it's this crazy, crazy weather. And we got to, we got to like descend, we got to get off this thing. And it is dang near vertical and it's wet. And once again, you're in a spot where you just throw your trekking poles off, you know, and try to figure out how to like wedge your way in between these two rocks to scramble down this like crevice to get down to where, um, the trail continues. And I never, that was so bad that that was sketchy Um, and then of course on the side of Lighty Peak when we were doing Highline Yes, and all of us are up there and I see these clouds and I'm eyeballing because I'm used to being in the Sierra and watching those things just pop up but I can see these and I can see it. they're getting bigger and they're getting closer and and I kept telling a few of them I was like we need to be moving you know, this thing's getting ready to get serious. And I hadn't said that in like two minutes and a big, huge crack of thunder. So Will and a bunch of others ran down the hill, you know, get in the tree line. And me, Matt and Joe stood there on the side of Lottie Peak in the middle of this lightning storm. And Joe looks at us and says, well, I guess we just keep moving forward. Like, there's no storm going on, like showing no emotions, like nothing unusual is going on on this hike. Joe's, so I'm, Joe's, I'm,
1: Joe's pretty matter of fact, isn't he?
2: Yeah. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, Joe's worth a lot more than I am. And if something happens and he comes up missing, somebody's going to look for him. So I need to be where he's at. Smart so man. He'll find me. Yeah. It's all about association. So we're hiking along there, and it's getting so hairy. I mean, the hair on my arms were sticking up. That's how much static was in the air, and uh, I could just feel it in my beard too. And so I whipped out my GoPro and turned it on and whipped it around. By the time I whipped it around, it whenever we had that one lightning shot that looked like it struck me in the skull, yes, um, I was convinced I was going to die. I mean, there was—you could not have told me any different. And I, I was I mean I was at peace but it was it was definitely an intense moment
1: yeah I remember that very vividly from the film it it uh, looked pretty sketchy and that that bolt of lightning that was no joke
2: yeah and then there were other bolts that were like striking 50 yards away from us and stuff and when lightning gets that close it makes a funny little sound it, Cause you're actually hearing the actual click of the spark. So you'll hear like a, or something of that, something similar to that ever, whatever the strike is Uh like a little click. And then you'll hear the boom, the expansion of the air that's, that's being heated by the lightning. Uh But, um, you don't want to hear clicking noises. That's not like, you know, it's way too close. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's not good. Uh, we had a we had a guest on earlier this year who talked about his time in the JMT this past summer, and he got stuck in a lightning storm. And he had, he pitched his tent, and then decided he did not want to be too close to the tree. And so he actually took his his uh, bear canister about fifty yards away and sat on it out in the middle of of nowhere. And a lightning strike hit hit the tree about fifty oh. yards away from him, and he said that. Uh, he couldn't hear for about 10, 15 minutes afterwards. His ears were just ringing and he couldn't feel his hands. They were numb for a, a good half hour.
2: Probably from the static electricity that was yeah. something. Yeah. And then, and then,
1: yeah. And some poor guy was killed at at Trail Ranch uh, this summer. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you heard about that or not, but struck by lightning. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The number one killer on the JMT. Yeah. The number one killer on the JMT is lightning. Mm -hmm. You know, hands down, and people gotta. I take it seriously whenever I was out there. Anytime I'm out there, if it if I see lightning or or hear thunder, I don't play with it. I find me a spot, set my tent up, get in it, I don't waste any time.
1: Yeah, we had we had the great experience of going over Forrester, uh, in the last half mile up to the top that's when the, the thunder and the lightning rolled in and we're we're at 13,200 yeah. feet with metal poles in our hands wondering uh, hey how do we get down quick
2: yeah 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 it's um that was kind of like jay peak whenever me and matt did the long trail <clears throat> we were up on jay peak and um storm was coming you could you could hear it the wind and rain was going they they were sideways It was insane, and Jay Peak is kind of like an old ski resort or actually a ski resort, but in the summertime there's there's no snow so we're hiking we go to get off this mountain it's we've done our pictures we're trying to go down this ski chute to get back onto the trail, and it is so crazy that the clouds that are blowing up the mountain look like their cars driving down the road, 50 something miles an hour and Matt is here and he's like, like flying by so quick. It's the wildest thing I've ever seen. I think I got it on video somewhere, but, uh, that, that was intense without (laughs) doubt.
1: Crazy. Now let's talk a little bit about the movie Highline. Um, we talked alluded to it a little bit earlier, five friends out on the trail. Uh, the, the movie is set up great. It's, it's almost two hours and they, they do a fantastic job of taking some time for each of the five of you and going through your backstory and kind of how you met. And it also spends, uh, it, it, it spins a great story out there on the trail with the five of you and, and how that all unfolds. How did you guys uh, meet Chris Smead of Outmersive Films? And how did, how did this movie get put together?
2: Matt and Chris um, had a friendship. They were already, like, talking, and they had been talking about doing some, some kind of video together mm-hmm. or something uh, for Z-Packs and things of that nature. And it began as being, like, maybe, if I remember the story right, uh, it might have been, like, a 15-minute, like, thing and then it turned into this, and then turned into this, and then they wanted to do this. And whenever they decided to actually make a full-length documentary out of it, um, Matt reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, would you be interested in doing this and sharing your story? And I was like, sure. I've never done anything like that before. And it's a great opportunity to share, you know, um, my my personal story that might help someone through their pts struggle Uh um you know because first responders struggle with pts uh more um than let's say military members and not saying that what they experience is like any less not saying that at all i mean it's a different breed of trauma Right. Even though we experience very similar trauma, we just, you know, first responders do have people shooting at us. We do deal with that, you know, uh, unfortunately, depending on where you live and things of that nature. But um, what's different from first responders and in, in our military uh, members is that they're typically on foreign soul. They're, they're in another country where we are in our own neighborhoods. We're responding to calls that with people we grew up with, Uh maybe family members. And we're having to do our jobs and maintain our wits while we take care of them and not like lose it because someone that we care about is in a really bad condition or something. So and you do this, and, and it's not like, okay, you go into battle and you're dealing with this and then you're then you're back at base. You know, depending on where you're stationed at here as a first responder, you could see death every day. Uh, you'll see trauma every day. Uh, so it doesn't matter whether you're a law enforcement, firefighter, EMS, any of those rescue, there's a good chance you're gonna see uh, something horrific just you know at any minute. you know, just like the other day, two days ago, there was a car wreck just right down the road from me that rode on its top and caught fire, and the people inside died. You know, if I had still been doing this kind of work, I would have been running that call. And those other calls that nightmares are created. Yeah. And so, first responders, they deal with something more called CP, uh, uh, CPTS. It's, um, I think they call it, um, um, compound post-traumatic stress where you're experiencing trauma over and over and over and over. And you don't have a chance to kind of like heal from it.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: You get back to the, you get back to the base, to the station and you're having to clean the equipment and you're having to get right back up there and run another one. And depending on how the craziness is going in the world, in your neighborhood, you may be going like all night long. I've, I've done calls where I've ran fires where there were fatalities, and then run autopsy runs, take those uh, the bodies to Nashville for an autopsy uh, as part of the rescue squad, and be going like all this time, all those hours and, and get back and then having to go do a shift at the EMS. And Uh so it's, it it never would like, there's no breaks. It's endless. Right. So uh, I tell, I just tell folks that, you know, just kind of be aware of that with first responders that it's depending on where you're stationed, it can, it can be rough. That's why a lot of those folks don't, You know, that's why there's a high turnover. Mm -hmm. I only made it like 13, 14, 15 years in the field before I said, okay, that's enough.
1: Yeah. I can't do that. Well, Chris, Chris Mead does a wonderful job with Highline and sharing your story and sharing your backstory uh, as well as the, the stories of the other guys. And if you, if you, if you're listening right now and you have not seen Highline, you need to pause the podcast right now. Find Highline. I think I watched on YouTube uh, for a minimal cost, and it is well worth, the, I think, the, the 4 or $5 that you pay to, to see it. It is a, a really well-done movie that um, is it, just an impressive job by, by the five of you and, and by Chris. So congratulations on that.
2: Nice. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, I got the chance to take some pictures on that trip and so they used a lot of my photos uh and animated them um so that was really neat you know gordy had the issue of that's right you know, had the bell and yeah. he was doing all the still shots mostly so whenever he left they turned around and handed me the camera i said okay you're it And you know, which was fine but i never used a full-frame camera at that point point. and uh so that was i had a learning curve and um But man, what some incredible shots we got from that trip. It's just, just beautiful.
1: Yeah. Every scene, every scene of the movie was, was just breathtaking. It was beautiful. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Now plug it in. You're, you're involved in some different organizations. One of which uh, really ties into what you were just talking about. Reboot Recovery.
2: Yeah, Reboot Recovery uh, is a nonprofit based out of Middle Tennessee, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and they focus on uh, assisting military members, uh, first responders, and their families. And now they have courses for just anybody because, you know, we all experience trauma, you know, whether it's divorce or family death or family pet we're all experiencing trauma at some, at some way, you know, uh, so they're helping even those people now too, but they have over 200 locations nationwide and uh, um, they just help people um, understand the kind of trauma that you're dealing with and how to um, control your responses to that trauma and help you understand that um, your role in that and how you can heal from that. Um, I know it, it's been very vital for my success. I mean, I'm 800 and I'm 850 something days, uh, PTS episode free at this point.
1: Congratulations. Um,
2: yes, sir. Absolutely. And it's not all, it's not been all easy at times, you know, there's been some very intense times where I came very, very close to going into an episode, but I was able to use what I learned from the course and uh, apply that. And actually I've gone through the course nine times, maybe 10 times. And um, I'm also a course leader. Uh, I'm, I'm not active right now. I don't lead a course, but, um, but yeah, and why I, go, why I suggest people go through the course so much is, and they allow you to do so, uh, let's say you go through the first course and we're going through the first lesson and we're on the first page and we're, we're going over something and something strikes a chord with you. It, it hits. It's like this is me and all of a sudden you're, the room just went and you're zoned in on this one line or maybe this one paragraph in this book. We've already moved on to like the last page. You're still on the first page.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. And then you go home. And then, you know, the next lesson, the following week, you pick back up and you know, you you make it as far as you can in that one. And the same thing occurs. So next time you go and do the course, let's say you complete it, you come back and do it a second time. You make it a little bit further in that first lesson. And you're thinking, did we even talk about this the first time? Because you weren't there. Right. And we're still back on page one uh-huh. so that occurred to me so many times and even whenever I was doing like my ninth or eighth lesson you know course, I was still having moments it's like did we really like did we really go over this? Is this new material you know is this a, a revamped version? So I suggest to everybody you know once you start doing it, just keep going because you're also creating community. You're also mm-hmm. becoming a part of a community. Other first responders or other veterans, they were struggling with this, you know, with PTS. And, you know, you have to lean on each other sometimes on some rough days, you know, and and they're going to get you through it because they understand what you're going through. For someone that, that hasn't ever experienced the things that first responders experience or military members, It's really tough to say, understand, because you don't. Right. There's no way your mind can go in that spot to understand that, you know, this is, you know, the things that that you've seen or things that you've had to do would give, you know, most people nightmares. And so it's just one of those things that um, reboot has been just that missing piece to my puzzle and thanks to them you know i'm I'm still standing here today and uh, my hiking does help my hiking Mm -hmm. helps a lot and and all that but uh, definitely the reboot recovery is definitely a lifesaver
1: yeah. Some things are meant to, to be solitary pursuits, like a magical moment on the way up to uh, Mount Whitney in the moonlight yeah. and other things are not meant to be solitary pursuits, like uh, healing from, from trauma. And so exactly. it's, if you're in a group that you're going to be better off going through that Indeed. process. Yeah. yeah. Hey, tell us a little bit about uh, Save Our Smokies, another organization okay. you're involved with.
2: Yes, Sabre Smokies, a good friend of mine, Jerry Willis, and his wife, Darlene, actually founded Sabre Smokies. I connected with them a few weeks later after uh, they made the decision to uh, form a Facebook group. And um, so we did our first cleanup. We did it together. And uh, me and Jerry did it there in the Smokies. And so Jerry is our president. I'm the vice president of Sabre Smokies. And uh, we go in and we help the Great Smoky Mountain National Park along with other surrounding areas like the US Forest Service over at Max Patch and other areas. But we remove litter from the roadsides, parking lots, pull-offs, things like that in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. And uh, we do multiple events during the month. We have different leaders leading different events. And so that means Jerry doesn't have to be everywhere, you know, all the time. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy how, how much time those things take. But um, last year we removed 10,133 pounds of litter from the roadsides just inside the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Wow. And that doesn't, and you know, we didn't cover all the roads. That doesn't, that doesn't count all the roads. We had to go back to many locations and redo them over and over and over because they were such high impact. And um, there's limited trash cans inside the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. So a lot of people just throw the trash down on the ground. And so we're having to go and fetch that. And there's a lot of trash that's been on the ground for decades that's been there so old that it's like the original old beer pull tab kind of cans. They've been there a long time. And we have the philosophy that if it's not natural, we're going to remove it. Mm-hmm. and we're going to do whatever it takes to do so so we go down embankments and do things like that but um but yeah that that kind of began in 2020 in november whenever uh, i connected with them like the first week in november they started like they actually made the decision to form the facebook group on october 17th and so i connected with them just two weeks later but until then that September through that November, I was going to Max Patch over in the Pisgah National Forest and removing a truckload of trash and abandon the camping equipment once a week. And um, that was tiring because that that is two and something miles or it's like two hours and something from my house. So I'm having to drive, you know, to North Carolina once a week to to pick up after college kids, basically. So I did this for several months and uh, that's actually where responsible stewardship was birthed. And, and that's the organization I founded. And, um, and that's where it all kind of came. That's actually what changed my whole mentality of how you social media by physically laying my eyes on what was being done to our public lands like max patch. um, I started reevaluating me. Uh What was I doing to contribute? You know, I was doing all the typical stuff that, you know, influencers do. I'm like, I'm sponsored. I've got all this gear stuff. I'm taking pictures, show me doing different things with gear uh geo every place that i went to um uh, you know doing all my youtube videos and i was doing everything everything that you know a typical you know someone would do uh, kind of like in an influencer type role and i never once thought about my impact ever it wasn't even on my radar and, right you know where i had gone to turkey and hiked in Turkey, 90 miles, or yeah, 90 miles along the back Black Sea, we have all this trash floating up. And all this trash on the shoreline, that was there, this wasn't here. But when I went to Max Patch, and I seen piles of trash and camping equipment just like strung out everywhere, TP all over the place, feminine products, beer cans, alcohol containers, You know, AT posts broken down to burn, or fence posts and railings being burned, or new tree saplings cut to burn. It it was like something I'd never seen. It was I relate it to it being like a traumatizing event Uh and how it just shakes you to the core. And it makes your brain just, you know, it's almost like. You know, you hear the old record, you know, record albums, people run that needle across it. You know, you hear that yeah. sound about that's almost like what I heard at that point. It's like, what? And
1: it, all, the, all the 20 year olds listening right now, they have no idea what we're talking about there. But uh,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: The record. What's that's a record. A good
2: old vinyl. <laughs> it's coming back. Vinyl's coming back. But yeah, I just, it changed my whole mentality of how I treat public lands. So at that point, I became an advocate for public lands. I no longer was exploiting public lands. I became an advocate. So I switched my role. Mm -hmm. And so I just started like trying to just focus on what am I doing? Focused on me first. Okay. What what have I done to contribute to this? How many people did I lure to Max Patch or to the Smokies or wherever I went? Mm -hmm. So I started going back through and I realized, okay, there's things I can do. I can put a stewardship message in my post. I can start advocating for public lands. I can start researching geotagging, and what kind of negative effects it's having on, you know, um, our public lands. So long story short, in that whole process of build, you know, building Saber Smokies is, is what it is today. Um, you know, I put my little like signatures here and there. Like inside the Save Our Smokies logo, it says responsible stewardship,
3: uh-huh.
2: and so that's my like little signature of you know whenever we designed the logo, and just different things that we do, um, and stuff like that. So I made the decision this you know late last year, like in December, to turn responsible stewardship into a nonprofit. Nice. I realized that there's more things that we can do if we're a mon- nonprofit. So, January 1, I filed, sent my paperwork, my attorney, all that. So, we are waiting on our EIN number as I speak. And, uh, but yeah, we're out there. We have our web- website up, responsible stewardship.org. And uh, we have a Amazon wish list that people can go on there and they can buy things on our behalf. And it's shipped right to us. Uh, usually, things like grabbers and trash bags, things like that. What do we have on the list at that time? Um, but we also made a thing of ethics, you know, how Leave No Trace has their principles, mm-hmm. or Recreate Responsibly has their guidelines. You know, we have our ethics. And since responsible stewardship is more moral based, we felt like ethics was a better word for that, mm-hmm. you know, for those guidelines. And basically, uh, You know, the ethics are, we want you to first know your impact, know your own personal impact you're placing on this location, whether it be physically or digitally, either one, you know, are you hiking on the actual trail? Are you using a user-made trail? You know, whenever you tag that place, are you thinking about what's best for this location? Are you thinking about likes and follows? Right, And then we also want you to educate. We want you to educate others, but we want you to do it through your action. So what better way to teach someone how to be a good steward, but show them how to be a good steward. Show them, you do it first and let them follow or empower them to inspire more people to follow. And on top of that, you're advocating you know, advocate for, for public lands, for the betterment treatment of public lands. Um, Use your social media. Everybody has a voice. Everybody uses it on social media all the time. Use it for good. You know, there's a hashtag out there called influence for good. Mm -hmm. Influence for good, you know, stand up for public lands. If you see someone not treating public lands, right, stand up for public lands and encourage them to change, encourage them to do different, you know, and not you know, be negative. One of the things about responsible stewardship, we try to avoid any negative wording or anything of that nature. We want positive reinforcement, positive influence, as you could say. But also, one of the one of the ethics is donate, donate to organizations that are caring for those lands.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, anytime I go to hike a trail, I join the conservancy or whatever that is over that trail. I also Donate to the organization that is maintaining that trail, because I'm placing a small impact on that trail when I'm my feet are on it, right? Whether we like that or not, that's the simple fact. We're helping to like wash that out by donating, so they can go in and they can do maintenance projects that maybe they weren't able to do before. Um, but then uh, one of our one of our most important um, ethics is also tag lightly. Tag lightly. Whenever mm-hmm. we were out in California, you've probably seen it out there. See those little bitty paper signs that they'll have outside of ranger stations, and some yep. of them were kind of long with a lot of writing. Yep. Did you ever read any of those? Most of them were written by rangers, and they were telling people to tag lightly. They're actually saying it: tag lightly and don't be a problem visitor those were actual words they were Mm -hmm. using and you would never hear language like that on the East coast. Um, you know, especially in the Smokies, you know, we don't want to do anything, you know, it seemed like park management don't want to do anything to offend anybody or send anybody away in those citations. But out West they were like, Hey, don't be a problem visitor. Do what you're supposed to do with your food because it causes problem for the next guy. Right. And so tag lightly, don't geotag. If you're doing geotags, if you feel like you have to do it, use a broad one. Use like the state, like California or Utah or Tennessee or North Carolina. Right. Don't use a specific tiny spot because you're zero and in on the GPS location that everybody and their grandmother is going to be there. And not everybody treats public lands the same. That's right. And that's the sad fact. Yeah. And I associate it like this. Geotagging makes as much sense as you geotagging your house, opening your door and leaving.
1: You would never do that. Nope, absolutely not.
2: Why are we doing it to? Our, why are we doing it to our public lands?
1: Fair point. Fair, Fair point. point. And as and a then
2: our our last oh, ethic, go I'll, ahead. I'll wrap this up. it's just together, uh, mm-hmm. foster stewardship together. We're going to see you out there fostering stewardship with that together encouraging others to join you you know making not only our public lands but our communities more inviting for everybody to enjoy responsibly it's completely inclusive there's nothing about stewardship that anyone can't do even if you're wheelchair-bound or handicapped you can still use social media to you know to advocate for public lands to share important information maybe help educate the next generation That's coming up in in the outdoor, you know, so they know how to act and how to treat the outdoors. Sorry, that was a bunch of stuff. That's
1: That's okay. It's all good stuff. And as a a user, as a user of those public lands, I I want to thank you for your advocacy.
2: Yes, thank you. I'm just trying to do my part and maybe encourage a few other people to join me. But we're, you know, we're quickly going nationwide. We got we're getting stewardship partners. Every day, uh, Uh, bit local businesses or backpacking companies, hilltop packs, Nashville packs, Z packs, um, uh, keep Virginia cozy, uh, evergreen adventure foods, nice route foods, a bunch of organizations all across are saying, okay, no, we want to take care of public lands and we want to make it a priority to do that. And they're actually, you know, Many of those are arranging cleanups out there and picking stuff up. Mm-hmm. Others are donating money like z They donate like $200,000 or more every year to public lands, to organizations that care for different trails and different things like that. And then you have organizations like Keep Virginia Cozy that are out there removing 10,000 pounds of trash a year. Wow. It's insane what some of these organizations are out there doing.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Hey, Benny, you know where we are? Where? We are at that time uh, of the episode where I ask you for your pro tip insight of the week. What piece of trail wisdom can you share with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better?
2: I think the, the best pro tip I can give would be kind of falls into my wheel well right now. And that's just simply, when you're out there, be a good steward to the trail. Be a good steward to the land and to everyone around you. You know, don't be playing a Bluetooth out loud, Bluetooth speaker, because uh, maybe the people around you don't want to hear that, that music. Or maybe they just they went out there to hear the birds and the crickets and all that instead. So just kind of think about those people around you. Don't try to push your experience on someone else and also if you see trash pick it up even the micro trash you'd be surprised on the JMT I I had so much micro trash that I picked up along the trail it was insane like my food bag was being almost more full of micro trash than it was anything else we even seen some spots where people were using a bathroom next to a lake right on the bank so You know, we try to remove everything of that that we could because that's going to contaminate other hikers behind us and make people deathly sick. So, when you see something, do something. Don't wait on the park staff. Most of these parks are underfunded and understaffed and may never even be able to get to that. Help them out and just do something to, to help these parks. And, you know, maybe encourage other people to do it with you. And just better yet, my best pro tip, I know I have a bunch, I'm kind of, I had, I should have warned you, I kind of had this old man syndrome, where I just start like <laughs> rambling on. And, uh, but my, my best pro tip is, uh, yes, yeah, it's getting worse. I'm like 49 years old and I'm just on the edge of it. Um, but my best pro tip is when you see something, when you see something like trash or a doggy bag or Vandalism, take a picture of it and share it on social media. And at the same time, at the same time, show what you're doing about it. Did you pick that trash up? Did you haul it out? Did you pack that trash out? Or did you help try to remove that graffiti or whatever the situation was? Right. Pick up that abandoned camping ground.
1: Start a movement.
2: You can individually start a movement in your mm-hmm. own community just like that by sharing what you see, letting other people be aware of what's really going on out there and sharing what you're doing about it. When you do that, that will do way more than I think anything else that you can do. You can use social media for good. At that point, social media is not being a negative influence. Social media is being a positive influence. And I just think it changes that narrative and and it encourages other people to join you because sometimes people just need to see others do it first. Absolutely. You know, if someone else didn't, it's not weird.
1: That's right. That's right. Benny, you are a good man. So there you have it. That's it. Yep. Absolutely. This episode is just about in the books. Hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Benny. want to thank him for joining us this week plug it in. How can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures?
2: I would say, uh, on Instagram, the real Beanie is a great location to kind of like keep up with me. If you're trying to keep up with responsible stewardship or want to see where you can like join in and get involved or do a cleanup. It's, uh, we also have uh, Instagram responsible stewardship, or you can go to our website, responsible stewardship.org. Get signed up for the newsletter and you won't miss
1: anything. You know what I think you're missing, Benny, is a TikTok, TikTok account. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't
2: know if I'm ready for that.
1: Okay. Hey, remember to check out the podcast on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakingmuir at gmail.com. Benny, I'm also looking to you to share a recommendation for a book, a movie, a documentary, some kind of adventure media. Uh, To keep our listeners connected to the outdoors during the off season here, we're calling this our adventure media recommendation. And I'm already going to stipulate that people should watch Highline, but what else do you have for us?
2: Yes. Yes. Definitely. Definitely check out Highline. Highline is an absolute must. Another great uh, documentary is through the great Southwest. A good friend of mine, Darwin, uh, in his company, Outdoor Evolution, uh, made that documentary. You'll probably see my handsome beard inside that documentary as well. I have no speaking parts, but I did walk by the, the camera a few times. And there's actually one book that I think that would be interesting for people to read. And it's called, I think, Under the Smoky's Moon or Chasing the Smoky's Moon, something like that. A okay. uh, friend of mine, Nancy East, she's the current FKT holder for the Smokies 900 miler but it kind of gives an insight of of her FKT hike there in the Smokies because they approached it as a day hike versus uh, like a backpacking trip like I did and everybody that did all the FKT holders in the in the Smokies we all did it different we have some that trail ran it some that just day hiked some that they hiked and did some backpacking too. And then some, I did all backpacking. So it's really neat how we all approached it in a completely different way and, and had, had a great result from it either way.
1: Fantastic. Well, let's check that out. All right. And yeah, that's
2: it's, a... It's definitely a great book.
1: Good. That's a wrap from the John Freaky Mirror Studio. Any shout outs to friends and family? Plug it in.
2: Uh, um. Uh, I guess I would like to shout out to myself. Uh, I I like myself. So I always wanted to do that. You know, you hear people calling out on a radio show, say, Hey, can I do a shout out? I'd like to shout out to my wife and my kids and my coworkers. I would just love to hear someone go on there and say, yeah, I would like to do a shout out to myself. I, I did really good on this podcast and uh, I think <laughs> I knocked it out of the park and I just really want to give myself good kudos for that. You know, I just always thought that would be just so funny, you know.
1: Well, you just did it, and you you did hit it out of the park, Benny. So, congratulations. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank thank you for tuning in. Always remember, the trail is the trail. doesn't care if you want to go downhill. doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if you spent the afternoon dodging lightning on the Highline Trail. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. Yes. <laughs>
3: Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.